Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. I'm really excited to bring you another coaching call this week. This time, I'm talking to Maggie, a friend and former writing student. She's got three projects she wants to work on, but is mostly worried about the novel she wants to write. We get into some of the lesser weeds of how novels work, but the principles we hit on apply across the board, as you'll hear shortly. Here's Maggie. I am going to start by asking you my my standard question. You can it's a it's a big question. It can kind of be a broad question, so take it in whatever way you like. Just don't let it throw you. Okay. <laughs> All right. So Maggie. What is your creative dream and what's getting in the way? Um, my creative dream has three parts. I want to write the great American novel. Okay. At this moment, I would settle for writing a novel and getting all the <laughs> Um, I want to keep painting. I want to spend more time painting than I've been spending. Um, and I want to be weaving again, which I have been all but inactive with really since really since residency started, which will be at this point five years. Okay. Um, what's getting in the way? Let's see. With the novel, it's fear of not being up to the mental challenge of holding it all in my head. Um, with the painting, it's a combination of not having the perfect studio to go to and um, finding other things on the calendar when there is good studio time available. And with the weaving, it's completely pernicious inertia. Um, At the end of residency, I finally got the loom threaded. That's four years ago. And I wove an inch and a couple of threads broke and they were awkward to repair. And so I didn't do anything. And last week I finally cut the warp off the loom put the loom up for sale and started thinking about a project for the smaller loom that is in the corner behind the big. <laughs> so that's a huge answer. What do you want to focus on for this hour? Well, that was actually what I was going to ask you. Probably the novel is the place where I could use the most help. Okay. So you made a comment about, having to hold the whole novel in your head. Can you tell me about a little more about that? Um, I'm aware of cognitive decline over the last several years, and that's not new information. Um, and I may cry talking about it, which is fine okay. with me. I remember when I could have four books in progress that I was reading and Pick, up, pick one up that I hadn't actually looked at in two weeks and know exactly where we are and who the characters are. But now, if I pick up a book that I haven't read in a few days, I have to go back five pages to find out where we are. And I may have to go back earlier to find out who the hell is this character. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Even though the, my, per, my perception while reading it is that the characters are well-drawn and 
that their voices are different and it ought to be pretty easy to sort them out. And it is. I just don't remember them. Um, I have the same problem with uh, relationships with my colleagues and relationships with my patients. I'll remember that I said something to someone, but I won't remember who it is. I will have to look to see which patient is the one who has a daughter and two sons and which patient is the one who has a son and two daughters. And those things all used to stay in my head. So that's, again, a long answer about cognitive decline. But when it comes to the writing, I'm constantly having to look back and say, well, wait a minute, what did I already say this character was doing? And if I have her walk in the room right now, is this the scene where she's 14 or the scene where she's 24? Okay. So how are you keeping track when you talk about whose family is whose? How do you keep track of that information? Um, I have notes all over the place. There's, there's a computer that I can check when I have decent internet, but there's also a notebook and I can flip pages and go, the last time that I saw Stephen, this is what we talked about. Oh yeah. All right. Now I know who Stephen is. Okay. So here's another question. When you write, do you outline ahead of time or do you write like by the seat of your pants? Like I do. Um, I have tried repeatedly to outline ahead of time, but the the characters don't want to go where I outlined, so I tend to follow them. Fair enough. That's what I do. What if you outlined after you write a section so that you would have notes like you do for your families? Aha. Uh-huh. That could be very interesting, and I have never even thought of it. So if I did that, Let's see, I would end up with a page. I would end up with a page for the grandmother that would say when she was born and how old she was in chapter one and how old she is in the part I'm writing now. Mm -hmm. And I would have a page for her daughter who so far has been a totally bit player. But I would have to actually figure out how old is the daughter based on the age of the granddaughter and those kind of things. Yeah, all right. So that might be very useful. Does that sound manageable? It does. And now I'm suddenly taking notes. (laughs) (laughs) Good. It seems to me if if it works for your patients, it should work the same way for your book. Yes. And my book probably has fewer characters than I have patients. Probably. And, you know, as someone who is allergic to outlining because in my case, if I knew how the story ended ahead of time, I wouldn't need to write it. Yes. You know, you do when you write a book that way, end up going back through it at the very least and kind of figuring out, Oh, I said this thing here, but over on this other page, you know, 20 pages later, something that completely contradicts it happens. And so one of them has to go And now I have to decide which one and I have to fix it and make it look like it was always this way, which I have heard other authors say basically amounts to outlining in reverse. And they probably have a point, even though I haven't ever, you know, actually sat down and made a proper outline afterwards. You still go back and, you know, it's kind of like taking a, this probably isn't the best metaphor, but 
it's the one that comes to mind, you know, taking a, a road that isn't straight and and making it straight as if you know it's straight flat beautiful road like you always meant it that way so yeah. you know that it's it's sort of the same idea it's just a slightly different angle cuz you're doing it the whole way through so that you can keep track of everything uh-huh which would work for someone else who just preferred to work that way too there's you know anybody could do that i think one of the things that has been a barrier for me and it's good to, it's good to have it show up explicitly is that I used to be able to do the continuity person function for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, my son, the filmmaker talks about how in the fifties, that was always the continuity girl because Uh it was a low paid internship kind of position. And it was somebody who was supposed to notice things like, uh, Jimmy Stewart's cast is on his left leg. And in Rear Window, there is, in fact, a scene where Jimmy Stewart's cast is on the wrong leg because nobody caught it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and since he didn't actually have a broken leg, you know, that would be easy to have happen. But I used to be able to do that for myself, and I clearly can't now. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if I got all the way through a first draft, handing it to somebody else and saying, flag the discontinuities would be easy. True. And it's interesting to note that I still note them if in a book that I'm reading. <laughs> um, you know, you, you said she had long brown hair. Now she has short hair. When did she cut it? <laughs> right. And I don't think that outlining as you go is necessarily going to prevent every continuity issue. But uh-huh. it will at least, you know, leave you feeling like you don't have to go back and reread the entire thing every time you want to sit down and start writing. Yeah, and and one of the effects of that is that the front matter gets totally polished and somewhat condensed, and the further in I go, the more wonky it looks. And so when I get to the end, I'm like, why am I even bothering with this? (laughs) Because you're human. (laughs) There's that. That's kind of the answer to both of those things. Okay. Yeah. So what else is going on with this book or not going on with this book? Um, hmm, I think I got shocked and maybe even a little scared at one point. And, huh, I don't think I noticed that. That's interesting. Um, I started with a, a scene and it doesn't, it doesn't even matter what scene it was, but I started with a scene where, um, she went to an auction and she bid on an odd lot because of one thing that was sticking out of the box and something else in the box became, Oh my God, look at this find. Right. Mm -hmm. So a whole sequence of days comes from that. And that's lovely. And then at some point later in the writing, I had to figure out, well, when was this and how old was she? And it turned out that she was exactly the age of the best year of my life in in the year that I was born. And I was kind of looking at that and going, oh, shit, what does that mean? Okay. Um, I think I got scared by the amount of synchronicity and unconsciousness that was being revealed in the writing. Um, Interesting. I think I had somehow thought that I could write this novel all out of um, talking self. And it's obvious that a lot of pieces of the novel come from 
the unfinished business of my life, the autobiographical bullshit, and also um, from unconscious material that needs to be processed. And I, I think I got scared. <laughs> I think there were things I maybe didn't want to know. That seems like a completely reasonable response. I think okay. a lot of people would be scared. Except it won't get the book written. <laughs> no, but it, the reaction is totally normal. So now the question is, what are we going to do about it? Well, it would make perfect sense to start with whatever scene shows up in my head and read only as much as I need to to get that started. Okay. It might make sense to read the whole thing. And huh, it's interesting to note that about four months ago, I got the whole thing out and it is now sitting on a chair in my living room waiting for me to look at it, but it's daunting. It's big. How big is it? Um, I think the text of this particular novel fills a fairly fat um, three-ring binder. Okay. But there are two or three other binders that have stuff in them that seems to relate to it. So there's a stack. Okay. When's the last time you read through it? Uh, probably three or four years ago. Then there might be merit to the idea of reading through all of it if that doesn't scare you too much. If it does, then I think, you know, your instincts are going to tell you the right thing to do. So if you want to go back and review some of it, only review as much of it as you think you need to. And, you know, if you only review, let's, let's say you have, I don't know, I'm just going to pick a number out of my head. Let's say you have 100 pages and you decide you're only going to go back and look at the last 10 or 15. And then you get started and you write eh, five or six pages and you feel like you're stuck because you need to know more, then you know that and you go back a little bit more. Uh-huh. You know, I would listen to your instinct. That makes sense. Yeah, because you, you really, something in you knows what the right thing is to do. Yeah, and I think I think the other thing that shows up is that I've done actually a tremendous amount of short nonfiction writing. Um, over the years in a, in a variety of jobs, I've had a bunch of technical writing to do, a bunch of uh, event narration, a bunch of publicity, and that has all been easy. And, you know, the facts are in front of me. All I need to do is assemble them into something coherent that somebody else can read. Mm -hmm. And so I, I start where it's reasonable to start and I finish it and I look at it over and I add the three things I left out and then I'm done. And with fiction, the facts aren't in front of me. I don't really know where we're going. I have no sense of how big this is or how long it should be. And so the fact is that I probably have three dozen fiction starts in a drawer and maybe 50 one-page notes for a possible thing, and nothing ever got to the end. And so, so it, it, I think another barrier is my recognition that I've never finished any fiction. Why should I finish this one? Okay, so why is it that you think you've never finished anything? Uh, I don't really know. 
there are, I mean, there, there are pieces that are just vignettes where I didn't go on with it because it wasn't interesting to me, mm-hmm. but there are more pieces where, um, I painted myself into a corner and I couldn't see how to get out of it. Okay. And I, and instead of cutting out the last six pages and going, well, let's go in a different direction. I kind of went, Oh, well, um, And I think there are also a couple of of pieces that got caught in um, somebody's elementary creative writing class from probably 1980, (laughs) where we talked about what a story has to have. And I don't always put in what the story has to have. The story has to have conflict. Well, I'm conflict averse. So, So sometimes it just stalls. Um, but I guess the short answer is there doesn't seem to be any one particular answer. Okay. So as far as conflict goes, yes, a story has to have conflict because otherwise there's no story. Usually I'm sure someone has written a conflict free story. I had to do one as an exercise in grad school. It was not easy. Um, so I don't want to say that it's impossible but it makes your job a whole lot harder as a fiction writer if you avoid conflict. That said, conflict does not necessarily have to be between people. There's as much conflict in a situation as there is in anything else. You know, you can have a character who's trying to learn something or discover something and it's just not working and that's the conflict. You yeah. can have conflict with an institution. You know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be between people, though. Usually there's going to be some. Um, But I think maybe part of the issue there is just the word conflict itself. And I wonder if it might be less daunting or intimidating if you think of it more as as tension or as, a you know, differing goals. You know, in the difference between tension and conflict. Well, conflict tends to create tension, but tension is what keeps a story interesting. So tension is the kind of emotional involvement that comes out of, say, um, will this couple get together or not? Will the hero defuse the bomb in time? Will, um, you know, who's going to win this fight? If you're having a knockdown drag out fight or an emotional fight, you know, a- anything like that creates tension because your reader is sitting there going, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I have to keep reading. I have to I want to know what's going to happen, you know, and and so it it kind of keeps you hanging. But it can be more subtle, too. It could be, say, King Lear. King Lear makes this crazy promise to his three daughters, you know, tell me how much you love me and I will divide my land accordingly, which is not the way anyone ever should do that ever. (laughs) But, you know, you have the two daughters who are perfectly happy to say, oh, daddy, dear, I love you as much as the moon and stars. You're the greatest thing that ever walked the earth, even though they don't give a damn about him. And then you have the daughter who actually does care. 
but who isn't going to sit there and come up with this flowery speech because that's just not her style. And so she ends up with nothing. The other two end up with everything because this crazy old man listened to flattery instead of his heart or any kind of sense. And now you have the tension that comes in because he's made this crazy decision. His two, you know, ambitious, ruthless daughters are going to do everything they can now to act in their own interest down to the point where they don't care if he lives or dies. The other daughter is languishing in prison. You know, you've got all of these things going on and they all drive the story. So the the tension, actually, this is a better way to describe it. The tension is what drives the story and, and keeps it going. What are we trying to get to? Who needs to get what accomplished or needs to get out of what situation or what needs to be resolved. Does that make sense? It does. And it it also sheds light on a a novel that I'm presently listening to where every once in a while I get scared and I decide I don't actually want to know what comes next. And I take a break. And one of the things the novelist has done that I appreciate is wind the tension up to the place where it's uncomfortable and I'm actually going to stop reading. And then drop in some reference to the future that lets me know that even though I think the hero is about to get killed, he's actually going to live through this. Ah, you know, for the rest of his life, these few days would be the most important memory or, you know, Mm. and, and it's an interesting dance between exactly the tension that keeps me reading and wondering what's going to happen. And the point at which I say, this is, I don't want this. Yeah. And I know what you're talking about because I have trouble sometimes with things like that too. You know, there there are certain certain books or movies where the suspense just gets to be too much for me, and I have to take a break from it for a while, which of course defeats the whole point of then getting to where the tension is resolved. But that's just how I am, and so I deal with it <laughs> because well, otherwise it would drive really me too crazy. That's how lots of us are, and it's I think. I think it's a lot of what goes wrong with politics is that when things become too uncomfortable, people turn away because it's too uncomfortable. Yeah. There's a limit to what human brains can take. Yeah. And, you know, I think different readers come to the point of having to take a break at different points, but I get that without any tension at all, I'm just reading, I don't know, a description. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to have something that moves things along. Yeah. And, you know, and and tension varies, you know, sometimes it's just a little bit. So and so woke up this morning, she made herself breakfast. There's not really any tension there. But then three hours later, she's at work and the person who constantly stabs her in the back is coming in for a meeting. And now we've ratcheted it up a little bit, assuming that we're not talking about a story where, you know, a bomb's going to go off. (laughs) So emotional bombs may happen in the backstabbing story. So, yeah. Yeah, and and I think, I mean, one of the things that keeps happening in this particular novel is that um, my main character, who is the grandmother, except as as I say, when the book opens, she's 28. um, She's constantly setting off to do something relatively mundane, have breakfast, um, clean up her painting studio, whatever. And she gets hijacked, kidnapped, uh, goes into a fugue state. I'm not sure how to describe it quickly, but she ends up somewhere else entirely doing something else entirely. And then when she comes back to herself, 
it's time to wash the dishes or there's a finished painting on the easel. And I don't always know how to maintain the tension of, of her experience as she comes back and goes, well, how in the world did this happen? And also let it be as mystical as it seems to be. That's it would a, be great if I could say I did it on purpose. But. <laughs> That's a really interesting question, but it, it seems to me that there's probably some inherent tension in, whoa, wait, what happened? How did I get here? What is this thing I'm looking at? And where did it come from? So there may not necessarily be an issue there, at least not at this stage of the game. It might be something that you want to leave to resolve later on. Yeah, that makes sense. But does the idea of tension rather than conflict help at all in resolving that? It does. That question? Okay. It does. It often feels to me that conflict between characters is dropped into the novel because an editor said so. And I often, you know, there's, there's not only don't go in that basement, stupid that we get when we're watching movies, but there's also, why are the two of you fighting about this? Right. And it sometimes seems to me that the two of them are fighting about this because the editor said it wouldn't go this smoothly in real life. That could be. And, you know, one of the things that you do aim for when you write a book is to have it be as realistic as possible. That said, sometimes things happen in reality that you wouldn't believe on a page. So, you know, that comes into it too. Yeah. And, and also I think um, just like what happens with the mainstream press, where as long as the mainstream press is essentially white and middle class, we don't hear about the viewpoints of people who are not both of those things. Mm hmm. Um, it often seems to me that what what shows up in mainstream fiction is a fairly narrow slice of how actual human beings actually live in their families. Oh, absolutely! You're you're imitating life. You're not necessarily accurate ref- accurately reflecting life. You know, we write dialogue the way we think people talk, not necessarily the way people actually talk. Right. And if you've ever recorded any dialogue, you know that we clean it up rather substantially or nobody would read it. Oh, yes, we do. Absolutely. But, you know, I also think it's it's possible that some of this is stuff you really don't need to worry about at this stage. So, you know, that's the kind of thing you can clean up when you revise something. Okay. It's it's usually more important just to just sit down and write. Don't worry about it so much in the first draft. Worry about it when you read through it the second time and say, eh, I don't think this needs to be here or this could work better or I want to change this because there's this other thing on page 50. Yeah, okay. Yeah, getting too hung up on too many details too early can keep you from doing anything. So how do you know when it's time to declare a novel done? (laughs) that I think probably varies from person to person. I think it really depends. I mean, for, for me, I went through my book mm, two or three times through the whole thing, just sitting down, reading through it, asking myself questions as I went. 
you know, what does this line mean? Where did this character come from? Why does this thing happen on this page and this thing happen on the other page? And and the answer to that last question, by the way, is not always, oh, they need to be consistent. It could be that there's a clue in there and that it's fine the way it is, but that you need to explain, you know, oh, there's this reason. But eventually, if nothing else, you'll get to a point where you feel like you need to be done with it. Oh, okay. Because the thing is, you're never, very rarely ever, does anybody who's working on a creative project look at it and say, ah, behold, it is done. It is perfect. I am finished. No. Doesn't I, happen. I totally get that. And and it's lovely that the audience doesn't know what you had in mind. They only know what you produced. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, you you just have to, you know you'll you'll know i really think you'll know even if it's just because you sit down and you say i can't do any more with this i have to be done but you may also reach a point where you say you know what i'm pretty happy with this and i've got this other idea that just popped into my head and i'm really itching to explore that so it's time to put this one to bed so that i can move on to the next thing and it may look like something else. I think it's probably a little bit different for everybody. But I, I think you'll know. The The only time you get into trouble is if you are actually chasing that perfect moment of glory. Because then you'll be working on it for the rest of your life. And you'll never do anything <laughs> else. And And you will undoubtedly have become what my eighth grade home ec teacher would have called a paralyzed perfectionist by that point. And... And yeah, then then you may need an intervention to stop you. <laughs> but um, but no, I I think you'll know. That's good to hear. I have I have definitely not arrived at knowing that anything was done. And that's okay. And you know, by the way, speaking of not ever having finished anything, the only novel I've ever finished is the one that I published. Okay. In fact, when I started my MFA program, part of the reason that I started out writing short stories was that I was terrified that if I committed to writing a novel for my thesis, that I would never graduate because I would never finish it. Okay. So sometimes you're finished just because there's a deadline. That has certainly happened to, to the nonfiction stuff I've written. Um, and I haven't ever written anything book length in that in that department either. But yeah, sometimes the deadline is the is the reason we're done now. Mm -hmm. And deadlines can be magic. Yeah, and and I think the other thing that shows up for me is that I really really loved the Foresight Saga. You remember Galsworthy? I I will have to admit that I know of Foresight, but I haven't actually read or watched it. Well, okay. I We were asked to read it in high school, which tells you something about how long ago that was. <laughs> um, but the thing I most loved about it was that you got to see characters through their entire lifespan. And he did a, an amazing job with the first generation and the second generation. And I could tell as a high school reader that the third generation got a little bit of short shrift because he was actually tired of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I think one of the things that shows up for me is that I, I prefer novels that go through a large number of years. I, I've read and enjoyed some novels that, you know, take a year out of whatever, or that take a, an incident. And I, I mean, John D. McDonald has this lovely piece where he takes a car crash involving four vehicles and he gives you the two days to two weeks beforehand of each of the cars and their people and the two days to a year afterward of each of the cars and their people. And, and it's a very compressed book and it's, it was really fun to read. But what I want to write is Galsworthy, and it's too big to hang on to. Well, you know, it it might be and it might not. You'll know. There's nothing wrong with playing with it and seeing what happens. And if it turns out that it's too big, take a chunk of it that really works and focus on that. Ah, okay. Or move on to something else. I mean, you'll you'll know. You do make a case for just going with my gut. Uh-huh. Because here's the thing. Most of the time, just going with your gut is going to actually get something done. Okay. And certainly overthinking is a good way to, to arrive at paralysis of analysis, which is what my teacher used to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I I see things on Twitter and on Pinterest and on writing blogs. And I hear people say all the time, oh, before you start to write, you, you know, here's a checklist of all the things you need to do. And I just look at it and go, no, you need something to write with and to start writing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. And the thing that shows up for me is that you need to have the email and the internet turned off at the moment. That can help. But, you know, people get hung up on, oh, you have to do an outline and you have to, you know, have figured these things out and you need this tool and you need that tool. No, just, you know, I mean, seriously, if all you have is a pen and a paper grocery bag and you actually put words on it, you're doing better than a whole lot of people who get hung up on the list. There is that. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, play with it. See what happens. That's that's honestly as as far as I'm concerned that's that's the most important thing. Go go do stuff. Make a mess. M- make mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not doing anything that's new and you might not be doing anything at all. So, you know, make a mess. Do you know, go out and go to a museum. I mean, I don't know if you've listened to the interview that I did with Rob Shearman, but he talks about how he goes out to a bookstore and he's looking at different things, but he's also at the same time kind of, you know, contemplating what he's working on writing and and it all it all feeds into the same process. But, mm-hmm. you know, the most important thing to do is just do something. Okay. That sounds really simple, but but honestly, you know, a pen and a paper grocery bag, at least you've got words on pages. Yes. And in some respects, that's a whole lot easier to work with than than words that are hidden somewhere or other in this computer. Yeah. Well, and, and you can't work with anything until you have words on pages. It doesn't matter if they're good or bad. Don't worry about good or bad. Just worry about words on pages, you know, or paint on canvas or threads in the loom. It, it you know, now granted, I have to think that editing weaving is kind of harder than most things, but um, <laughs> Actually, <laughs> you might need a little more of a plan for that. 
the word for it because we do it so much. But yes. <laughs> but but you know, I mean, once you have something down, you can say, "Oh, here's what I have," and work with it. Until then, it's all just fluff in your head that doesn't really exist. Yeah, and 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 going around in circles about the fluff in your head that doesn't really exist is not nearly as much fun. No. And you also don't get to sit there and say, oh, look, I wrote something. I painted something. I took a picture of something. I did a thing. I practically never get to look at a piece of writing and go, oh, look, I wrote something. But I, I, I welcome the day. Well, but here's the question. When you write something, is it that you're not looking at it and saying, oh, I wrote something? Or is it that you're looking at it and saying, oh, what is it? I don't know. Maybe it's no good. Because those are two very different things. Uh-huh. I wrote something is literally, oh, look, words on paper. It could be the same word 62 times, but it's still words on paper. Okay. That's a new idea. And you're right. I usually have been looking at it in some judgmental or evaluative way. Yeah, those are two different things okay it's probably the difference between creative writing and all the other kinds of writing i have done also the difference between writing more and getting hung up on what i wrote was bad so i don't want to write anymore because it'll be just as bad yeah okay and it also applies to everything else you know i mean the same the same principle works for whatever it is you're trying to do so some of this may carry over into the painting and the weaving. Interestingly, I did know that about painting. And the best work that I have done has been when I started off with a blank canvas and threw some paint at it to see what would show up. Um, you know, not that, not that one can ever draw a picture without having some image in mind, but playing with it is definitely how it gets better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cause playing with it is like what you do when you're a little kid. Yeah. Most of which we've all been trained out of, but never mind. Yeah. I mean, my three-year-old nephew will pick up a crayon and scribble all over a piece of paper and not think twice about it. Sure. Granted, the same child, you know, at Thanksgiving looked at my stick figure Pink Panther and said, no, the feet are wrong. Do it again. (laughs) (laughs) The look on my face must have been priceless. Yeah. I was not expecting that. It's like nobody's watching and then laugh at somebody else's dancing. Yeah. Yeah. The feet are wrong to it again. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Just like, what? (laughs) So, yeah, but, you know, I, I can also tell you from watching his big brother a month later that perfectionism starts as early as six, probably a little bit before. Yeah. Yeah, my, my, my inner critic and I had a lovely conversation some years ago in which we discovered that she's not 10 feet tall with teeth the size of, um, I don't know, pick a, pick a metaphor that's scary. Mm-hmm. But she's actually a five-year-old girl trying desperately to do everything right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think perfectionism starts when you start trying to conform to all these instructions, some of which are mutually exclusive. Yeah. It's as soon as you get the idea that there is a right yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. So, and 
since it's kind of sort of obliquely come up, the comment that you made at the beginning about painting and finding the perfect studio space, I would just like to point out to you that I'm sitting in my bedroom closet right now, surrounded by my clothes and can literally barely move in order to record this call and record other interviews for this podcast. (laughs) You do not need to have the perfect space. You just find the space you have and use it. That that's a perfect. Yes, that's a perfect metaphor for exactly what's going on with the book too. Okay. Yeah. Don't don't get hung up on all the details. Just go have fun with it. It's a first draft. Yeah. Okay. Which doesn't mean that other drafts are going to be difficult and hard work, and you're going to hate it. They're just a different kind of fun. But this is the fun where you just get to go try anything. Yeah. Well, as usual, talking to you makes me feel like there's space that has opened. Good. Very good. Then my work here is done. (laughs) (laughs) Unless there's anything else that you want to talk about. I think I'm okay. I think think now I have to drive for an hour before I can do anything about it, but that's all right. That's all right. Now you you have plenty of time to let stuff percolate in your head while you're driving. Yes, I do. So thank you for the opportunity to do this. You're welcome. Thank you for being willing to be a guinea pig. That's our call for this month. I hope you found some ideas you can use. Thanks to Maggie for volunteering. And if you'd like a little help with a project or getting started or even just figuring out what you want to start, I'd love to talk to you. Email me at nancy at fycuriosity.com and I'll be in touch. I want to leave you today with a poem I found on a scrap of paper recently, which fits my conversation with Maggie and, I think you'll agree, is something we can all relate to. It's called Against Hesitation by Charles Rafferty. If you stare at it long enough, the mountain becomes unclimbable. Tally it up. How much time have you spent waiting for the soup to cool? Icicles hang from January gutters only as long as they can. Fingers pause above piano keys for the chord that will not form. Slam them down, I say. Make music of what you can. Some people stop at the wrong corner and waste a dozen years hoping for directions. I can't be them. Tell every girl I've ever known I'm coming to break her door down, that my teeth will clench the simple flower I only knew not to give. Ah, how long did I stand beneath the eaves believing the storm would stop? It never did, and there is lightning in me still. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.